was going through our vision to really see what we're about. Um, so we called it This Is Us, who we are wherever we are, and really trying to talk about the core threads that run through our community and who we're trying to become like and inhabit as a community. Um, Benny, I didn't give you a heads up about this. If we got the slide with like all the bits on it, the series side, we might not do. Here's, let me recap it if it appears, then uh, it appears. Um, this is what we'll be talking about, being an ecosystem of people. So that means that everyone, in all of we are, we are diverse as the body of Christ, one body, many parts. So we're not going to all look the same, but we're trying to be unified and basically uh, be an ecosystem where different plants are thriving in our community and each of them are strengthening one another. Uh, being a church of many workers is sometimes the language we put around it. Following the way of Jesus, it's all about Jesus. He is our guide through life. So following the way of Jesus and seeking his renewal in the region, believing that he wants to do wonderful things and that this place can be transformed by his love. So we're being an ecosystem of people following the way of Jesus, uh, seeking his renewal in the region, trying to be characterized by four particular things. The first was being marked out by God's presence. That means being a people who are filled with the Holy Spirit every single day of our lives to live out the way of Jesus in the world. That means we're, we're immersed in our scriptures. This means we're, wel we're deep in prayer. It means we're welcoming the Holy Spirit, live, trying to live holy lives. And you use this image of trying to be a landing strip for the Holy Spirit. This kind of idea of like a, uh, what is it, where planes land and there's lights on it and there's someone waving and saying, land here. This is where you can land. That's what we want to live our lives like. Saying, hey, I'm a landing place. I'm a place for your Holy Spirit, God. Come and land here. I want to be empowered by you. It starts there and is sustained by living in God's presence. You have to be in the vine to bear fruit. So you want to be marked out by God's presence. You want to be uh, marked out by loving community. So learning over time how to love each other really, really well. So that if anyone's missing, we notice. So if anyone's in need, we give to them. So that we pray for one another, care for one another, tie our well-being to the well-being of others. And essentially just learn to be a genuinely loving community where we champion one another and look after one another, uh, or, or where we're honest with each other and no one is faking it. That's what we're longing for. So marked out by God's presence and a loving community and deep formation that God would be transforming our hearts. It is exhausting to follow the way of Jesus from an earthly, worldly heart. The Sermon on the Mount was about taking the, you know, these amazing principles of doing stuff and then saying, but God, I've got more for you. I actually want you to not just uh, not commit adultery, but not lust. That's my actual heart for you is transformation at the deepest level, right? And so we want to be a people who are being deeply formed by Jesus. He is forming himself in us and we are being changed. So that's what we're going after. And the fourth and final one, which I'm doing today, is imaginative mission. Imaginative mission. We want to be characterized, be marked out by imaginative mission. So I'm going to dive into this uh, this morning. I want to read two amazing prophetic pictures from Ezekiel. One is in 37, chapter 37. One is in 47, which is helpful. Let me read these out. The hand of the Lord, this is, sorry, Ezekiel 37, 1 to 13. The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and sent me, set to me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, son of man, can these bones live? And I said, sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. 
This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then we know, then you will know that I am Lord. Verse 37 and 47, another beautiful picture, verses 8 to 10. And he said to me, this water flows. This is uh, a bit earlier on, a temple, and the water flows out of the temple. It says, this water flows towards the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah, where it enters the Dead Sea. When it empties into the sea, the salty water there becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live where the river flows. There will be large numbers of fish because this water flows there and makes the salt water flesh, fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. Fishermen will stand along the shore from Engedi to En Eglain. There will be places for spreading nets. The fish will be of many kinds, like the fish of the Mediterranean Sea. Two beautiful pictures, prophetic images, dreams of what happens when the kingdom of God reaches the world. Dry bones. Can they really live? Yeah, they can live. When the breath of God enters them, when his flesh goes upon them, tenders form with them, they will live. The Dead Sea, so salty it cannot sustain life. Can that really be a place where people fish? Well, yes, when the river of life that flows from God's heart, when the kingdom of God and the river of life flows towards it, The salt water doesn't make that salty. It's the water that brings life to the salt water. So much so that there are fishermen spreading nets right down the banks. Beautiful prophetic images of what I'm about to talk about. So what are we talking about when we talk about imaginative mission? Let me deep dive into the imaginative bit for a a moment here. This language that we use, it comes from uh, an Old Testament theologian called Walter Brueggemann. And he talks about something called, he, he describes as prophetic imagination. Having prophetic, this is what the church is called to have, is prophetic imagination for the world around us. Which he describes as being able to host a world other than the one in front of us. You know, to host a world other than the one in front of us. In other words, there are horrific circumstances right in front of us. There is a broken and hurting world where it can seem so hard right in front of us. It's not to ignore that or be falsely positive about it or whatever. No, it's hurting. The world is hurting and it's broken. We do not shy away from that. But the call Brueggemann has upon the church to have a prophetic imagination is not let our vision stop there with how things are, with the status quo. Believing that that is how it will always be. No, it is to host a world other than the one in front of us, to host a vision of the kingdom of God in its place. And not just see a dead sea, to host an imagination for what might happen if a river of life flows into it. To not just see dry bones, but to host an imagination for what might happen if God's breath came into those bones. To see the bones, to see the Dead Sea, but to host an imagination for what could happen if the love of God invaded that place, that person, that situation, that circumstance. The, dead, the sea may be dead and the bones may be dry. But we're called to see fish and flesh because that is the hope we have in Jesus. Prophetic imagination is keeping crisp in our mind the realities of a world where God really is king. 
amidst a world where that kingship is contested. And I really believe that stoking this imagination is really hard. It's really hard day to day, but I believe it's one of the most important tasks of the church in the world. I want to imagine it like a fire, and it's just simply this case that fires can go out. If you don't tend to them, if you don't stoke them, if you don't feed them, fires can go out. And I want to, I want to say to us that, that, that this is our watch. We are the church of Jesus in this place at this time, along with, as in, I don't mean this, some basils, right? I mean the church. Uh, you know, we are the church in this place at this time. The fire is on our watch right now. It's on us to tend to it, to, to fuel it, to feed it, that it doesn't go out on our watch. Because if we lose imagination, lose hope, lose faith, lose a vision for what can be and just collapse into what is, if we become short-sighted and only can see the circumstance in front of us and not look at them through the lens of what God could do, then we'll lose our ability to shape the world because we simply become an echo of the world, right? We simply just reflect, well, that is how it is. We no longer become with the Holy Spirit in us an agent for change. We just simply reflect and echo that which is. There's this amazing bit in Psalm 137 where the, the people of God, the Israelites, have been in exile in Babylon for a long time. And they ask, the, the psalmist writes this, how can we sing the song of the Lord while in a foreign land? How can we sing the song of the Lord in a foreign land? Right here is a, is a, is a beautiful cry out, which is like, we've been in exile. And the whole point of being in exile would be that they were trying to assimilate you to their culture. So you see this in the story of Daniel, right? Where Daniel, along with the other people of God, are in exile in Babylon. And the whole point, this is why they're so powerful, is they take you into exile to make you like them. Come and live amongst the Babylonian culture with the Babylonian gods and the Babylonian view of life for so long that you forget Yahweh and his songs and his view of the world. Come and become like us. And so they keep them in exile for that long, whether it's in Egypt or Babylon or wherever. And, uh, but, and, but, and we're in a sort of exile. We're no longer in a land where uh, God's rule is uncontested. But, you, uh, but basically, Daniel does this amazing thing where he refu- they're, they're told to give up their hours of prayer. And Daniel refuses to. And he keeps his hours of prayer, right? And so he stays in the Lord. He keeps the song of the Lord alive in him, though he's been in exile for so long. And this is the beautiful thing, is that he therefore doesn't lose his imagination for what God is doing. He doesn't lose the sound of God's voice. And so he becomes the only one able to interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dreams. It's this beautiful thing. In exile, he didn't forget the song of the Lord. He kept his prophetic imagination alive, and he becomes the interpreter of the dreams. I've told this before. Uh, th- I love this little, little anecdote from the Celtic tradition. Uh, the Celtic families uh, would, when night would roll in in winter, and you'd see it sort of getting darker and darker, they had this little tradition uh, where they would, they would, as a family, look at the darkness coming in and would just speak into the darkness and say, I beg to differ. And then they'd strike a match and light an oil lamp and hold it up in the darkness. It's this beautiful thing is I see the darkness. I see the brokenness. I see the isolation. I see the marginalized. I see the poverty. I see the unjust systems of this, that, and the other. 
I see it. But when we keep the fire of prophetic imagination alive, it's like lighting a match and saying, I see you, but I beg to differ. Because Jesus is the light of the world and the darkness shall not overcome him, right? And so it's about hosting a prophetic imagination. It's a little bit like that, saying, I beg to differ. I beg to differ with the world as it is. So often, we allow the reality of the world to shape our understanding of God. But this is a call to let the reality of God and his kingdom shape how we perceive the world around us. Karl Barth, the great theologian, was like this. The church exists, exists to set up in the world a new sign which is radically dissimilar to the world's own manner and to contradict it, the world in a way that is full of promise. To exist in a world in a contradictory way, but that is full of promise. One of my other favorite stories, you're getting them all today, is of Bonhoeffer, right, where he's got his amazing community called Finkenwalder. And there's this community that he is trying to stir up for the kingdom of God in the midst of an arising Nazi regime. And one of his friends, called Wilhelm Niesel, comes along to him and says, Dietrich, this is all too intense. This is too intense. You've got this rule of life and these shared resources, this common pot of money, and you're teaching everyone this theology. It's all a bit intense, isn't it? And he takes him across the river, rows across the lake, as you know by now, and he goes up the hill on the other side, and he points over to, uh, in 1936, a training camp for the Nazi regime. And he says this, we, pointing at Finkenwalder, his community, have to be stronger than these tormentors that we find everywhere today. This, the kingdom of God, the church, the story we tell is going to have to be stronger than that. That is prophetic imagination for the world around us. When Plato was asked about the future of Athens, he said this, Athens will only flourish when it is designed by artists who imitate heavenly pattern. Athens will only ever flourish if it is designed by artists who imitate heavenly pattern. There is a call on the church, whether you, we're all in a process of grasping this probably, but like, there is a call on us to be the artists, the designers of our communities around us by imitating heavenly pattern, the stuff of the kingdom and the stuff of the world. And listen, I don't want to get too lofty here. I've quoted Plato. I've quoted Celtic monks. I've told stories of uprisings in Nazi wartime. Prophetic imagination also <clears throat> prophetic imagination also looks like refusing to accept the isolation of an elderly neighbor and it's embodied by a regular cup of tea. I'm getting emotional about that because that's probably what we can do, you know? That little bit. That's the stuff we can do. I tell the other stories to make the macro point. One preacher says, those are big stories, but the best stories are the ones you can do yourselves. Prophetic imagination, I really do genuinely believe, looks like changing the food systems. I really do believe it's about modern day slavery. You know, I really do believe it's about no one in next to going homeless. You know, I believe it's these systemic, we talk about justice, 
mercy and kinship here a lot. I really do believe it's about changing justice at structural levels. But so often for us on a day-to-day moment, it will look like a cup of tea with a neighbor because you refuse to accept the cultural and social norm that the elderly are isolated. Right? We can grasp a cup of tea. We can do that? Okay. Good stuff. So I want to ask you, where is there dead sea that you could be a conduit of river, of the river of life into it? Where are there dry bones around you? And you could be the one God sends to prophesy to them that they shall live. That's what it means to have imagination, I believe. To imaginative mission is very simply, and I'll take two minutes on this, is just that we are a sent people. We are a sent people. We are not a ring fence club of privilege. We are a sent people. You could literally just Google sent as a word in the New Testament, and you will literally be inundated with this stuff. But John 20, 21, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, so I'm also sending you. Matthew 10, 16, behold, I send you out as sheep amidst the wolves. Luke 9, 2, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God. Then he sends them in pairs. He sends that he's completely always sending. Matthew 28, go and make disciples. Paul's letters often open with this. I find it so striking. I Paul sent. I, Paul, sent. I've been sent. I want to ask you, do you feel sent? Because so often when we just settle into ordinary life and we've been in the same house for a particular period of time or, or we've had the same job for a particular period of time or we've been doing whatever, you can lose this really easily, this sense that you are a sent person. Jesus is, in order for God to heal the world he loves so much, his first movement was towards it, came into the mess to redeem it. And so must ours be. So I want to ask you, do you feel sent in your home? Do you feel sent in your workplace or on your street that feels just quite ordinary and stable? Do you feel sent? Because there is such a strong gravitational pull towards inertia and comfort. Unless we intentionally pursue and inhabit and engage with this fact that we are actually missionaries sent, then uh, that really creeps in. And remember, if you remember Dan talking a while back about um, this story that uh, Richard Raw talks about in terms of the church as a lifeboat station. Nod if you remember this. Yeah, a few people. Good, Dan. Stuck in their minds. But like this whole idea, I'll try and do a 30-second version of this. But like there's this raging sea that looks like the chaos. You remember the spirit hovers over the waters of the deep? And our role was to extend Eden. And so, anyway, I'm so need to stay on track. Um, uh, but there's this watery chaos, and we've all been in it. And Jesus steps into it, and he pulls us out of it. And that forms the church. The church are people pulled out of the same chaos. And they uh, form a lifeboat station. And the lifeboat station is right there, positioned right by it. And they build a ramp down. They build a boat. And they get a lighthouse to warn people. And they start going in and in again and in again and in again to, to save, to be with, to get in the chaos with, to pull out, to extend the grace that 
we've received to others, to put the same hand down into the chaos waters that we ourselves received. Because the key to understanding ourselves rightly as sent people is we're not superior people, right? We are sent people, but we're not superior people. When that creeps in, you get like, I am doing mission to you. And I am going to save you. And I'm going to do, you know, if that sort of superiority thing creeps in. And actually, no, we are just saved. We are just the receivers of grace, extending grace back out again. But the problem with the lifeboat station is that actually it's quite warm in the lifeboat station compared to the, on the beaches and on the rocks and in the water. And so we start to quite like the time like in the station. And, uh, and you might buy a couple more comfy sofas. And then you might decorate a little bit nicer and whatever, nicer lighting. And then it suddenly just becomes a lot cozier, a lot nicer place to be. And so you're less and less enthusiastic about going out uh, into the driving rains. And, uh, and so it becomes a club. And we settle in to being a club. And a few radicals think this isn't right. And they go, no, 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 no. Uh, we should be still going. But it's a few of them. And they go, and then they realize you can't take them back to the club. So they go and build a new lifeboat station, et cetera, et cetera. And then that one, this is just a cycle, uh, a gravitational pull towards comfort that lives in all of us without exception. Uh, but we are called to be consistently sent out into the world, not as superior, but simply as those who are stewards of the grace that has come to us. To be with, to be alongside, 